Okay. Um, um, last week it was uh, it was nice. We kind of pulled the chairs in. It was very cozy. Maybe we could. Um, maybe you can all bring your chairs in over here on this line right here. Is that possible? No, no, no. no it's not <coughs> if, if I sit over here, we can make it a little bit smaller. No. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're really uh, on this side of the room. So why don't we bring in the chairs, everybody? We'll just, we'll just sit here like this. <laughs> you, want, you want to move your chair? You want to move your chair right here? Bring it in. Bring it in. This room right next to me here. Can I bring this over here? Sorry that this chair is not a great chair. Okay, so I'm going to leave it. Can I move this? I'm going to sit here. Yes. If you're, you're not going to sit Eli, sit right here. You sit here on this one. I think I'm going back to my back. Thank you. Sharon, tell me how it feels to sit there. It's about time Do, somebody else. It's get, about time somebody else yes. sat there. Can I ask? Am I going to get these very special powers once I sit in this chair? I'll have your memory. Check it out. See what happens. 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 You're wearing a ring. You're wearing your ring. I'm kissing it. I'm So I, I said last week that we we're going to talk a little bit about. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about Hanukkah tonight, and then maybe we'll get back to Shabbos a little bit at the end. But given that it's tonight is the last night of, uh, well, it's the second to last night, tonight is, is the Shavi Shul Hanukkah. Um, I just want to bring up some old business before we get to new business, if I may. Last week, you mentioned something about the Pew Commission and the Pew Survey, yeah. Pew Survey and speaking about the Jews and intermarrying and stuff. And I was thinking about that. And then I was in Shul on Shabbos and we, we heard about Yosef. And Yosef, when he came out, whatever, connected with Faro, Faro gave him a wife. She was from the, from the uh, mystical group of Odd or Doe or something. Oh. Um. Excuse me? Own, Kohen Own. Oh, okay. Poti, right. Not necessarily a Jewish group. Yeah, Jews don't only they Jews don't only marry Jews. There are no Jews. Well, maybe a couple of There are people from within the family, so yeah, they married so my my question also comes then you go to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Right. Also took a Midianite woman, probably a woman of color. My question is Nowadays, certain of our people are tried. Everything is the Torah. They go back to the Torah the way it was done in, in the Torah, and they really nail that. Why has their their reaction to the other people and intermarrying and, and just the, their relationship changed so much? Whereas most of the time they go back at everything that Moshe Rabbeinu did. Got to do it like Moshe Rabbeinu did. I'm surprised we don't wear turbans or mm -hmm. things like that. Why is it? Why is it that disconnect that it didn't happen with relating to the other people and marrying the other people? I mean, back then they said, you know, uh, Ruth's classic. You want to be with us? Yeah, I want to be with you. I want to be with your people. Okay, you're cool. I have a problem with that. Can, can you address that for a moment, please? Yeah. 
you know, I think it, it's complicated to be rabbinic Jews. It's very complicated. It's hard to, to imagine Judaism without the... The Judaism that we live is a rabbinic Judaism. So even if we have problems with rabbinic Judaism, and we do, and even if rabbinic Judaism is far from perfect, it's a system, and within the system there are, there are a lot of rules that have been implemented and, and formulated over centuries. And so it's absolutely true that when you look at, if, if you ask somebody about, it's ironic when you ask somebody who is a, a strictly adherent rabbinic Jew who tries to make a claim that they're actually following the, in the ways of, of Moses and, and, and the Bible, it's actually not the case. Right? There are many biblical examples that are far from what the rabbis created, but they claim an authenticity that is rooted in the Bible. So, you know, I'm not really sure what your question was. I think that conversion and intermarriage were all very complicated issues. Not, not Even for people who don't think that there's anything inherently or intrinsically wrong, per se, with intermarriage, there's a very functional question of how that works in a religion that is also in ethnicity and has cultural qualities and, has, and defines Judaism in a certain way. It's, it's complex. It's I mean, not. It's not as simple. Is, is lamenting, and, and even when you said it, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. When, <clears throat> when Pew comes up, you were kind of no, nobody was lamenting in Pew study. The, the, the Pew study is showing us with, whether we agree with whether we think there's anything wrong with intermarriage or not. If you're Orthodox, you think there's something inherently wrong with it. You don't have to believe that there's something inherently wrong with it to have, to look at the data and look at the numbers and see that. The data seems to be showing us that, that it is much more difficult to find children of intermarried families identifying as Jews. And that itself might not be a problem, but if it is important to have Jews identifying as Jews, the data seems to be overwhelmingly claiming that um, it's more difficult, but we don't know why it's more difficult. It could be for a whole slew of reasons. I'm not saying that intermarriage is, is an okay thing. I'm I know saying, you're not. I'm saying, I'm saying what are right. the criteria that yes. you consider an intermarriage and, and why not welcome more people in, which would take care of Mr. Pugh and right. know, the disappearing uh, Jew. But you know the answer to that. Are you asking me honestly or are you asking me just uh, provocatively? Well, you, you've had your foot in many different worlds, and I've been in a couple different worlds also. Right. So I just wonder why, if... if the number of Jews are going down and there's such a great intermarriage, why are we not, there's a big movement in Israel, welcome, inspired. Whereas here, it's, right. it's let's find ways to keep them out. So we're upset that there are more Jews and we're not continuing with Jews, but some guys, Haredes in Israel and certain part, they're fighting, let's find a way to exclude and keep everybody out, except our thin sliver. Well, That's my question. I, I, don't have, I don't think that I have any problem with that solution. Again, I'm, I'm with, saying, I'm saying that the data to be more welcoming. I think that the, the data seems to support that there's a problem with the transmission of Jewish values and Jewish identity, not Jewish values, but Jewish identity, in families where there's intermarriage. Does that mean it's impossible? No. Do I know literally dozens and dozens of families where there is intermarriage and there is still very strong Jewish identity? Yes. So I don't know the reason for the diminishing numbers, number one. Number two is I don't think, I don't think that um, the reform movement has a policy of patrilineal descent. 
They have a policy of patrilineal descent. So, um, I'm not sure how much... I'm saying why not be more welcoming when when you mean people in? Right. Welcoming meaning what? What do you mean by welcoming? Meaning when people want to to convert, don't make them go through so many hoops. I see. Such impossible. I'm saying welcome them in and allow them to become indeed Jews, which would Uh expand, but don't make the hoops impossible. That's what I'm saying. So, on the one hand, we're saying the pew says we're diminishing. Well, what are we doing about it? That's you're doing a great thing about it. Roman was doing a yeah, great no, thing. No, Absolutely. No, I agree. But I are the that, other folks hearing? I think that the conservative movement is very much actually uh, hearing, the conservative movement is hearing that quite a bit. The reform movement is already, uh, to some degree, makes it pretty easy. And the Orthodox? And in the Orthodox world, I can't mm-hmm. speak for I think that the Orthodox world is caught between a rock and a hard place. I think, for the most part, the Orthodox world isn't turning away people that come to them looking for an Orthodox conversion. It's just not that, you know, not many people are... There, there aren't a lot of stories where people uh, went to an Orthodox rabbi and said, you know, I want to convert, and then the rabbi said no, and they remained not Jewish and then got married. It's not a common occurrence. If people want to... It's not the most... I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that that's one of the... I, I wouldn't say that that's a large indicator or a large problem in the whole question of conversion. I'm not worried about the Orthodox world. The Orthodox world is not having a problem. The Orthodox world is just fine. In many ways, it's growing. It, um, it's, it's very strong. Your question is really a question of how, how liberal movements can make it easier for people to convert, and how they can engage intermarried couples and intermarried families in a way that would make them want to be Jewish and pass on Jewish uh, identity to their children. And, um, you know, a a more vital question or more pressing question, more relevant question for me as a rabbi is, would I be willing to marry couples, given that so many of them, people are already already becoming, they are intermarrying, and they come to me and they say, we want to have a Jewish ceremony, which is my, you know, as, a, as someone in, who used to work in sales, that's kind of an exciting moment. <laughs> you know, someone comes and says, I'm, I'm interested in what you're, what you're selling. And I say, well, listen, unless you're, you know, you got to buy it the way I want you to buy it, otherwise you can, you can go shop somewhere else. So you, would, you wouldn't marry them. So, so I think that it's very complex for, for rabbis. It's very complex for, for the... I brought this up with an Orthodox colleague of mine. And, um, and it's, it's, it's complicated. It's very complicated. I said, then listen, they're going to get married anyway, anywhere. And I have an opportunity to, to be a positive experience for them in the Jewish world. Or not me, I'm saying anyone. It's a real problem for people on the ground. Because on the one hand, you want to say, as a rabbi, I really want to honor my tradition's rules. On the other hand, do I think loving somebody, you know, it's a much larger universal issue, which is love is more important to me, certainly more important to me than religion is, personally. Um, At the same time, I can't honestly be a rabbi at a ceremony that I don't necessarily agree with because it might endanger the Jewish Jewish continuity. It's very complex. So, um, but if I don't marry them, then I certainly am not having a positive impact on their life. You see the problem? So what would you do? 
So what would I do? You have to stay tuned for that. Case by case. What's the part you would have to? You have to stay tuned for that. No, I haven't. What's the part you'd object to? Just that they weren't really doing anything with Judaism, just getting married and then leaving it? Or what would be the objection? The objection? Um, is that as a rabbi, I'm responsible for... I'm, to, I'm responsible, not just... It's not my own personal opinions that are what matters the most. And I'm carrying 2,000 years of tradition, and I'm trying to navigate it in, in a very modern idiom, and I have to think about the consequences, and I'm responsible. So is it, is it kosher, if you don't believe, is it kosher to say at a Jewish wedding, I'm marrying you according to the laws of Moses and Israel, when it's not according to the laws of Moses and Israel? What if, what if the people so were, it's complicated. What if the people were 55, 60 years old? Is it second marriage or just getting married? Is it, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good question. See, you guys are right in the, no you're in the heart of it, aren't you? This is what, what we have to contend with. Like, how do you balance these things? And I think that um, certainly, it's, from my perspective, if Jewish continuity is the most important question here, and people are committed to living a Jewish lifestyle, then it's very, very hard not to marry those people. Even if, you know, if their Jewish lifestyle is culturally and rich and it's committed in, in, a, in a certain way, and the kids will say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a Jewish heritage and I'm upholding, it's very, very difficult. I, you know, I know that's being recorded, I'm just going to say that it's very, it's very <laughs> complex. <laughs> and, uh, and it, it's certainly, for me personally as a human being, as a human being and a, at first and a rabbi second, it pushes all of my buttons, personally, because when I look at two people, I'm, my first question is not, are you going to have a Jewish home, but are you going to have a loving home? That's my first question. And, you know, like, like, you can be the most religious people in the world, but if your house is not loving, then it's not religious. You know? And they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, but, but they're equally, I mean, it's, as a rabbi, I should be asking that question as well. And then I say, okay, so God is in this place because it's a loving place. But no, I'm a rabbi. I'm not a priest. That's the tradition I'm in, so I have to honor that. And um, and it is scary to look at those pew numbers. And you know, when you when they looked at the pew numbers of people who were who were intermarried, and again, this is just it's not caught. We don't know the the cause. It's just it's all. Um, uh, it, 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 it's all the outcome. It's all the it's all the deductive reasoning here. We are deducing from this. We don't know, so we see that the, the numbers are staggering, staggering. And the actual ceremony that speaks about Kedai Moshe speaks about as of the laws of Moshe. And who did Moshe marry? Right, but it's before Moshe. Okay. There were no Jews. All right. So I want to talk about Hanukkah tonight. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize for taking you know, it's just be, it's, it's the kind of thing, the kind of thing that we can definitely have. If, if our people are interested in this level of, of I mean, I, I find it fascinating too because it's at the crossroads of particularism and universalism. It's at the crossroads. It's at the nexus point of conversations about ethnicity religion and what Judaism actually is, how do you pull it apart, how do you tease it apart, what, why is Jewish continuity important at all? I mean, what could, that's a much larger meta question. 
Like, is it really so important? Everybody makes it into such an important thing. Maybe Jewish continuity is not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe that shouldn't be the criteria. Maybe it's time to stop that continuity and start a new continuity. Who knows? Those are all part of, I think, a, a larger conversation that is certainly, you know, when I went down to, I was in Baltimore for something called The Conversation, 50 leaders from, from across the country and the world for that matter coming together to talk about, to talk for two days, and the only thing we talked about was a Pew study, and it was, and the, it was literally people sitting in a room like this, and people who have thought about these things day and night for years, and people asking questions like, well, you know, Orthodox guy will say, but what, do you, what about the kids? And, and uh, somebody who's not even religious, but Jewish, will say, well, well, who cares? Like, it's not a religion for me. I don't care if they're religious. As long as they know about Jewish history, and you can teach them that if they're, if they're not born Jewish. It was everything and in between. So if everybody wants to, if you want to have this conversation, I'm happy to, um, to have a pew weekend, you know? <laughs> so it would be a good thing. Yeah, Jeff. I to say something small, but when I got married to my husband, who wasn't Jewish, and my cousin, who's an Orthodox rabbi in Flatbush, I went to speak to him. I said, what do I do? And we talked, and it was very clear that I was going to raise my kids Jewish, and they were going to go to day school, and this was important to me. And I said, well, shouldn't you just convert David? I mean, wouldn't it be easier? He said, no. It's have a civil ceremony. Get married, have a civil ceremony. There's obviously a reason why you guys met, and you should get married. Ever wants to convert, we'll see. And he did 13 years later. But that was how we figured it out, and it took us a lot of time, is that I should just have a civil ceremony. And I was happy with that. That was fine. And, yeah, and, 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 there, and, there, and there are some people who would say no. You know, and, and I think that that's. And then I had to get remarried 13 right. years later. I had right. to have a so it's a legitimate. It's a legitimate question because it, it, how do you grapple with it? It's also legitimate because it brings up. You know, I know a lot of people that don't want to convert. Might convert? Why should I convert? I mean, I just sat today. I just sat today with right, right, which is great. And I sat today with Eleanor uh, Bregman, who's uh, the member of our community, who um, she and her husband Peter are doing the Stranger No More course, which is our course um, for families in our community or who are interfaith or multiple faith uh, families. And she's a practicing Christian. She's a minister. And her husband, Peter, is an Orthodox, an Orthodox grew up like me. And they, their three kids are all in Yeshiva Day schools. All of them are blonde hair, blue eyed, from Savannah, Georgia. And uh, all going to Jewish Day schools. And they agreed to raise the kids Jewishly for the sake of the kids' own sense of, of navigating their identity, but their identity is complex. And, uh, and, and a lot of us are hyphenated human beings, and that's the nature of a, of a postmodern multicultural society. And uh, the question is, is it, the question for liberal progressive Jews is, you know, is saying I won't marry an interfaith couple, is that a, uh, is that a statement of values or an adherence to a, a system and honoring a certain system because of you know, the data or because of whatever it is. Those are the questions for liberal progressive rabbis. What is the reason why you won't do an interfaith marriage? Is it because you would be betraying your trust as a rabbi? Is it because you think that inherently it's wrong? I mean, there are a lot of different reasons not to do it. And why would you do it? And those are all interesting to me. I I shocked my orthodox rabbinical friends, and I guess it's now going to... I, I think that there's um, a new paradigm is emerging, and the question is, with all new paradigms, is how do you midwife it? 
you don't want to rush things because things get born on their own time. And um, the, the, the paradigm that is emerging will be, um, will have to have more space within it for, for different kinds of understandings of Jewish identity and Jewish uh, peoplehood and, and what the religion is all about, in my personal opinion. But we could talk about this all night, if you'd like. But um, I'll just take two more comments, and then maybe we'll talk about Hanukkah. Judy. In our own community, when we had, when Diane first came to Romanu, we had a seekers meeting of parents. About 80% of them were mixed marriages. And they chose Romanu for their children's education. Right. A woman came over to me. Where was it? Oh, a woman came over to me uh, at on Shabbat uh, after the bat mitzvah, the special bat. We were at uh, the restaurant for the ki- for the kiddush, the turquoise, and she said, "I love the service, Rabbi, and I would come back, but I'm not Jewish. Is that okay?" And, and you know, and I said to her, "Is that okay?" What a funny question! I said, "I would be honored if you would come and and pray with us." Jewishly, that's what a wonderful thing to say. You know, you would want to pray the way that my ancestors have prayed. See, I view that in that way, and I know that all of my colleagues don't. They and they'll say, you know, I think the conservative movement now is is having. They just agreed to let non-Jews open up the ark at the temple. So, and I know that there's a lot of disagreement about it. And I think that you know, frankly, I I respect their. I respect how they're coming to it. I, I just don't get it, personally. I, I, I don't get it. Our little Diana Vieira, who is a yeah. mayor, is a neighborhood woman, Latina, yeah. who comes to Rome, but she's not Jewish. Right. See, a lot of people would find this, but a lot of people would find this uh, very, very uh, problematic. A lot of people would find it very problematic. And from their perspective, which I can <clears> understand, I was on the phone with a friend, a friend of mine who's a Republican, and I was, and, I, and, and, yeah, and we, were, we were having a conversation I know, exactly. That's a good I, exactly, exactly. Can I marry a Republican? That's a question. So uh, I said, uh, no, I said, uh, the truth is the person's in my family. But anyway, okay. So, um, so he's tell, we're talking about Obama, and he said, and he, um, and I said, at, at his, at Thanksgiving, at, I was going to be at the Thanksgiving meal, but he was going to be at the Thanksgiving meal that I was going to be at, and it was going to be all people who agreed with this perspective. I said, oh, you're going to have a field day talking about all these things, you know, at Thanksgiving. He said, no, no, no. When I'm there, I take the other side. <laughs> and I said, oh, this. He said, it's really interesting to get people to think about the legitimacy of the other side's position. Like, you know. So, in, to, to just the legitimacy of the perspective of those who think that it's not, it's a, they say, listen, it's not, there's nothing, there's no judgment around people who are not Jewish. It's just, there is the particularism of the form of the practice, and the, and this is our community, and a community has to have boundaries, and the boundaries that we're drawing are between those who are members of this covenantal community and those who are not, um, and that's uh, their perspective. I find it to be too narrow for my own heart. My own I, my own soul feels really. F- I can't. I can't even. I can't, I don't fully. I can't say it. It doesn't even come out of my mouth. Um, but I get it, sort of. Because I for hackneyed. Um, I just wanted, I wanted to, how did I stand up, please? I just, it's a quick story. Uh, my daughter, when we lived upstate in New York, 
We lived in a town where there were virtually a handful of Jews. And in high school she met a guy and fell in love and wanted to get married after high school. And we were totally against it. Went to our rabbi, who was a conservative rabbi, and he said to me, you have two choices. You can accept it and keep your daughter, or you can not accept it and lose your daughter, because they're getting married. And if you don't accept it, they're going to keep you out of your life. And thankfully, of course, they got married. The kids, their kids were bar and bat mitzvahed. In fact, my son-in-law, who never converted, taught in the Hebrew school on Sundays. So you got to be lucky. That's part of it. Lucky, and but also um, lucky and loving. Right. You know, I said, I, you know, it's like when somebody comes, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of, um, like I always want, I, I always feel that people, if they're, I mean, I'm not, maybe naive this way, but I feel like if if people are treated with dignity and respect, and and we we engage people and we and we invite them in and make it available to people, that they'll they'll connect, they'll appreciate, they'll. That's my personal opinion. It's true. And it's the way of Hillel. It's the way of Hillel, really. It's the way of Hillel. It's the way of Hillel. And it was the way of Jesus. Just thought I'd say that. <laughs> Why not? Because he was a rabbi too. To bring it back to Kabbalah. Yeah, I'm going to bring it back. Don't worry, but no, 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 I, I wanted to. Oh, you okay? Go ahead. I, I studied Kabbalah. So a couple mornings ago, it was the unification. Right. The whole Megillah comes down to showing the world the unification and how we're all united and, and God's goodness and greatness and stuff. And it didn't say the unity of the Jewish God or anything, right. but it was the unification. And and when you have people who are making these striations and hiding in the cave, it kind of is counter, it goes against showing yeah. what Kabbalah is really saying, what the eager of the whole business <coughs> is to show the unification, how we're all together and Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad kind of a thing. So that, that's another thing, bring it right back to, to Kabbalah class. No rebuttal. <laughs> yeah, we can hear Thank you for allowing me to hear that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to hear that Hanukkah is really. So, what Hanukkah is all about is a very simple belief. And the belief is that it doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how far one falls from their idealized image of themselves or of their world. It doesn't matter how much the world disappoints you. It doesn't matter in the ultimate sense, not in the moment-to-moment sense of honoring one's feelings, but in a, in a larger metaphysical say, sense, like a sense of like the way things are. Hanukkah says it doesn't matter, right, that you have a holy space called the temple and the holy s- precinct of the temple was sacred and it was completely sacrosanct. It was, it was, it was walled off. It was literally walled off. 
And you can get a sense of the wall when you're standing in front of the, the wall in, in, in Jerusalem. You're standing in front of the wall in Jerusalem. You get a sense that, that the holiest space in the Jewish tradition, like all holy spaces, required <coughs> protection. It required boundaries. It required chomot. The word in Hebrew is choma. Chomot. A choma is a wall. And the ancient temple in, in Jerusalem had walls. It had walls within walls. <coughs> and it had divisions within divisions. There was the outer precinct, then the, you went into the holy area, and then there was the Holy of Holies. So there were in, increasing levels of holiness in the, in the temple, and it was all contained by the chomot of the Beit HaMikdash, the chomot, the walls <coughs> of the Beit HaMikdash. And then, Yivanim nikbetsu alai, ufartsu chomos migdalai. It's like in the song Ma'oz to Yeshuati, right? That, uh, I don't know the English of that. It's like a, the reform movement has this English, I don't know. How does it go? A rock of ages, that's it. Rock of ages, right? Right, rock of ages. Sounds like a, it, it, it was, wasn't there like a, a Broadway show, Rock of Ages or something like that? Like a, heart, like a, a rock and roll show? There you go. Thank God. So, in Mao's Tzur, there's one of the verses in Mao's Tzur that in my family we sang all of the verses. In most families, they just do the first verse. And uh, the second to last uh, verse goes, Yivanimnik Betsualai, the Greeks have gathered around us. Chashmanim, it happened in the days of the Chashmanim dynasty. Ufartsu Chomot Migdalai, and they, they breached the walls of our towers. And the term ufartsu, chomot, and they breached. You can hear the word peretz in there, right? Ufartsu, uperetz. Peretz is a biblical figure, right, that was born to Tamar, one of the twins that was born during the illicit relationship between Judah and Tamar, peretz and Zerah. And Zerach. So peretz is another word for the Messiah in Kabbalah. Peretz who is the great-grand-great-grandfather of King David, <coughs> and whose name means to spread forth, to reach, to break through. Right? In the, in the L'chadodi, we're, gonna, we're not talking about all the L'chadodi tonight, but there's a line in L'chadodi that some of you... Again, I'm sorry that I have to actually use stuff from our liturgy and from the tradition, but you'll get used to it and maybe learn it. Okay, it's just like, I'm a rabbi, what am I going to quote, uh, you know, I could quote the Bhagavad Gita, but it's, this is what I'm more fluent with. Right? The second to last stanza in the Chadodi goes, Yamin usmol, tifrotzi, right, left and right, will you break forth, tifrotzi, v'yet adonai ta'aritzi, al yad ish ben partzi v'nismecha, it's the second to last stanza of those nine stanzas. And it's a very messianic, we're going to talk a lot about it. But the word peretz is the son of peretz. You can read it in, in our Sidur. The son of peretz is a, another way of saying messianic awareness. The messianic awareness. This one who breaks forth. So now if you go back to the Rock of Ages verse that I quoted as well, the Greeks have gathered around, they broke through the walls. You can imagine, if you're a Kabbalist or a Hasidic master, you're thinking, the Messiah is the one who breaks through the walls. The Greeks broke through the walls. It's a kind of an anti-Messianic moment. 
Right? They broke into the intimate place the way that the Messiah will also break into the intimate place. But they broke into the intimate place not to, hold, to make holy, but they broke in and they defiled. And so that the opposite of the Messiah is when something in an intimate place, something that is private, is inappropriately made public. When something that should belong to you, that is mine, that is mine, that I, have, that I value, something that is precious, something that's special, is inappropriately exposed. Right? The opposite of evangelism. Like evangelism, I say, I want that which is private to become public because I love it so much that I want it to break through all of the divisions between the private and the public, and I want you, who are in the public, to know about it. Kind of like lighting candles in your window so that everybody knows that what was in the inside has relevance to the outside. That I'm the, I'm, I want to also, I want you to know what's on the inside of my house, the inside of my heart. Right? Every evangelist has a shtickle messiah complex. It's a little bit like, I'm going to change the world. If you've you got to take this spinning class, Sheldon, because it's going to change your life. You've got to go to Om Yoga. Oh, here's the worst kind. You've got to go to Romamu. Oh, right. Got to go to Romamu, otherwise, uh, it's going to save your life. Just one dose of Romamu and pff, forget it. You won't go anywhere else. Everybody who wants to share something deep inside wants to erase the boundary between the inarticulatable the, the, the inexpressible, the hidden, and the revealed. They want, to, they want to breach their own walls. And they want to breach the walls that divide. And they're hoping that that which, will, that which they're sharing is positive, hopefully, you know. It'll change your life. It'll make you holy. It'll save you. And in the Kabbalistic world, the Greeks represent archetypally, not all Greeks, certainly not ones that I've met. Either, right, anywhere they are, you know. And the, the Greeks and the rabbinic mind become the place where someone has forgotten to knock on the door and has entered inappropriately. They are porates. They, they breach, they, they run in, they... We know people like this. We know Greeks. It's Greek to you, it's Greek to me. There's a lot of that, that uh, lack of sensitivity to the boundaries of the sacred. And the sacred here, I'm reading much broad, more broadly than... Um, right, than, than a temple. I was a Greek Friday night, I'll tell you a story. So, a friend of mine said that um, something that's been bothering me for a while, but he had a solution that I thought was okay, but we're going we're gonna to work with it now. I think there's a difference between saying Kaddish for a friend and saying Kaddish for your father or your mother. I think there's a difference. I think that it's legitimate to say... <coughs> That, that in a synagogue, which itself is honoring the laws of Mourners Kaddish, that we should be able to make a distinction between very, the high, within the hierarchy of mourning, if, as, it, as it were. But I did it 
I kind of did it on my own. I took it upon myself to change the way that Romu says more is Kaddish. And I received an email from someone in the community who said that she was extremely hurt by how quickly it happened. Like that I didn't explain that I was going to change it and why I was going to change it. And she was so right on. I wrote back to her, I apologize, she's so spot on about it. Like they should have been done a little with greater uh, attentiveness to the way that people get used to things and so on. So I was parades. I, I jumped, right? I had an idea. And into her sacred sanctuary, she's been saying Kaddish now for almost 11 months for a partner who wasn't legally married to her or whatever. And it hurt her, you know. The distinction between the more important and the less important? No, it's a lot of things. It was that too, but it was also the way this, that there wasn't enough preparation, that kind of thing. We do that. We do these things, right? We get an idea, and boom. But you didn't get permission for people to do that. People just did it, right? No, it was my idea. Oh, you did? Yeah, it was my idea. So, okay. So, um, you did prepare us for that one step. Once I gave a schmooze. I look at you guys defending me. It's okay. I appreciate <laughs> it. I did prepare, but then I didn't prepare. Whatever. It's okay. It's okay. And the beauty of the of the beauty of the story about Hanukkah is the affirmation that that there's that there's a jar of oil that can't be contaminated. That there's a a place inside each and every one of us is a place in general that that is munach v'chosama shal kadosh baruch hu shal kon gadol. Munach v'chosama shal kon gadol means that it's it has the seal of the high priest, <coughs> meaning it's 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 safeguarded. Like there is a fundamental assertion about Hanukkah that the darkness can't ever fully win. That's what Hanukkah says. And Hanukkah says every single year that there's no way that the darkness will win. And not only that, that you can be rest assured that there is something inside of us that is inviolable. It doesn't, there's, it, it's in, it, there's no way that, um, that even those who inappropriately breach our boundaries, or even when we allow ourselves to have our boundaries breached, that there is a, a place inside of us that will that will endure. In fact, I'll say this, you know, I, I haven't said this, I think in, in, it just came into my head. I haven't said this, I don't, I don't remember ever saying this to the community. But when I was in, I was 23 years old and I just began studying uh, massage. Almost 24. And I was reading up a lot about different energetic systems of body work, you know. And uh, I came across a book by a guy named Jack Rosenberg and, um, and Marjorie Rand. And it was, um, and in it, it was talking about some of the difficulties with certain kinds of body work. There's a particular kind of body work people might have heard of called rolfing. Anybody hear rolfing? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. How many people have been rolfed? Oh. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Live to tell the tale. <laughs> Those who know, know. It's a very old-style old rolfing. Gesundheit. Wow. Well, rolfing was, was a technique of body work that was the, created by a woman named Ida Rolf. And it essentially was, in its orthodox version, there were ten sessions, and some of the results were, make, were outrageous, were, were, were 
some of the transformations, the before and after pictures between people who had, before they got roughed and after they got roughed, are unrecognizable. People's hips, people's shoulders, people's face, it, just amazing. They're working essentially on connective tissue and fascia and really reworking the alignment of the body. But underneath it, Ida Roth's assumption was that the, that the body and the soul are not two, and the body and the psyche are not two. And that in addition to opening your body, you were also opening up emotions and feelings and memories that were associated with those areas of the body. And what people didn't realize at the time, what Jack Rosenberg in this book, in this book pointed out, was if you ask the body to open too quickly, or, right, or if you force your way in to the Holy of Holies, whatever that might be, in a person's body, it's not as if the access that you will get energetically is the same if you force your way in as the access you will gain if you, if you are invited in and the person you are roffing listens and releases simultaneously. You can go in, and then so beautifully he had a poem in there about how the soul, when someone forces entry into, into the soul's house, the soul will just pack its bags and go and live in, a, in, a, in the country house. And it'll seem like the soul is living in that house. Like you think, wow, this muscle is softening, there's more energy there, there's more aliveness. But the, the, the sentience, the, the being, the person, will, will split. And just, they'll just say goodbye. You think, oh wow, I got in, great, I'm sitting on the living room couch. And the soul's like, see ya. <laughs> but that soul that says see ya is that jar of oil on Hanukkah that says, you can't have me. You can't, you can't have me if you break through the walls. You can have almost all of me. But there's a part of me that will never, ever, ever be captured. And that's a fundamental assertion of Hanukkah. That's, the, that's really the deepest deep of, of all of our Torah. And that's why it comes at the end of these three months after the, ho- the holidays. It's, it's, it's as if the message of Hanukkah is it doesn't matter. This is why in our tradition, Hanukkah is like holier than Yom Kippur. In our tradition, Hanukkah is the completion of Yom Kippur. And specific, specifically tomorrow night and Thursday. The last day of the last holiday, right, of this period. Is it because it, it, its fundamental assertion is it doesn't matter how much darkness there is, or how far you've fallen, or how much you've given yourself away in your life. You can always find your way back. There's always something there that can be reignited if we have hope. That's, that's, that's Hanukkah. And that's why Hanukkah is the ultimate holiday of the Balei Tshuva, of those who are returning, who are masters of, of getting up, dusting themselves off and saying one more time. It's as if, and I said this Friday night, every single night of Hanukkah, it's as if the candle says, oh, I went out last night? No problem. I'm starting again tonight. And not only am I starting again tonight, but I'll add one. Oh, you think it last night was, you know, two? I see your two and I raise you a third. And then it, and then it goes out. And then you think, oh, it doesn't last. And then you start again. You start again. That's the way of Mosif Vaholech. Like you, right? You have to start from one every time. That's the essence of a Balchuva. So Nachman and Breslov talked about this over and over and over again. That you always, we have to learn how to start over again. 
It's like starting from scratch. <coughs> it's like it all got, you know, it all, it's all gone. I start from scratch. But it's never from scratch. It's like God is like, like Shlomo used to say, listen, the first night of Hanukkah is the miracle is that we found it. And the second night of Hanukkah is that even when it went out, we went back and said, let me try again. It's like, wow, you know, you know, you guys get it, right? Mm-hmm. You get it so well. It's like, can you imagine, like, um, I, like a million examples coming to my head. I'll, I'll choose the most banal. Like, imagine in sports, right? It's like, you're down to your last strike, you're the 1986 Mets, right? You're down to your last strike. And, uh, and it's uh, Gary, uh, I love Asholom. Gary um, Carter. And like, you know, it gets a base hit. And they tie the game. It's true that they won the game. But imagine they tied the game. And imagine then the next inning, the Red Sox went up again, which didn't happen. Imagine that. So, you know, the Mets are thinking, wow, what do I have to do? I, I, I clawed my way back into the game, and now we tied the game. But, like, the next inning, they scored three runs, and now it's all for falling, you know? It says more like the Yankees. Yeah, it is. <laughs> right. And then they came back anyway, and they said, you know what? We can do it again. So, so the first night, Shlomo said, we found the oil. And then no sooner had they found that one, right, that one cruise of oil, it ran out. They used it all up, let's say, in that, in that theory. And then they said, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? And they came back and it was still lit. And they started again. And so it's like that, he says, in life. Is that we... We struggle just to find a little jar of oil sometimes. Just to find one good thing. What the Swas Emes would call a Nikudah Tova. Like a really good point. What Nachman calls it a Nikudah Tova. Swas Emes, a little point of light. Something good in a relationship, in our life. And then we can build on it. And that's the essence of tshuva. It's like not to be down on ourselves and just to, to have a, a hopefulness about it. And he says, and this is where I'm going to, we got to, you guys still with me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we, you know, 23 minutes and, you know. So, that's why Hanukkah is really very much connected to the eyes. This Hanukkah is so connected to the eyes, more than any other holiday. More than any other holiday in our tradition, Hanukkah is about about right vision, perception, cleansing the doors of perception. Mm-hmm. See, so much of of what happens in our lives is that we have violent eyes, and eyes that that eyes that own, eyes that divide. We have two eyes, right? One sees the right way, the left side. By nature, we're, we are, our eyes are created to bring together two visions in a unit of place. That's what our eyes are constantly doing, right? Two different perspectives that are becoming unified. But 
when our eyes are, um, you know, when my eyes are, are so full of, of longing for the wrong things, when my perception is clouded by um, a sense of lack in my heart so that my eyes wind up wanting what they don't really want, or if my eyes tell stories about something that has limited, had limitless potential, and my eyes say it has only limited potential. When our eyes become, when our eyes do violence in the way that they, um, they sell our dreams short, then um, Hanukkah comes to say, you got to change your eyes. <laughs> you got to change your eyes. I have to change my eyes. And it gives me these candles and it sets them up and it says, here's the practice. Whatever you do, you cannot use these candles for any purpose other than for looking at them. Right? You can't read by them. You can't use them to count money. You can't, you're not looking for bread crumbs. That's the wrong holiday. Right? So Hanukkah, the Hanukkah candles say that there has to be a way to look at the world without doing violence to it. There has to be a way to look at people without doing violence to the people that we look at. There has to be a way for us to look at ourselves with, with, with what's called an ayin tova, with a, a, a beneficent eye, with a generous eye. You ever see you know, somebody who's like, has a generous eye? Like, we want to be around people with generous eyes, right? Right? Who, the people, who are the people that we choose to hang out with? Well, if we're healthy. Who are the people that we choose to hang out with? Right? Who are the people that we choose to hang out with? We choose to hang out with people who look at us the way that we should be looking at the Hanukkah candles. When we're around people who, are, who look at us as if we are, we, we're the Hanukkah, we're the menorah. People who look at us and say, hmm, I really see you. Not what you can do for me. I see your limitless potential. I see in you the jar of oil that can never be defiled. I see in you that from that one little point you could extend yourself into infinity. That's what eight days is. The truth is that the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah candles could have extended all 365 days. They stopped after eight just to give us a little sign. It's like, in other words, it could go on. It's like, you know, it's an etc. At the end of Hanukkah, it's like, it's etc. Every night. Eight days. Eight days means forever. Eight days means the end of... It, it's... Mashiach Tzayt, the Messianic awareness. Eight days means beyond time. Right? So we look at somebody who want to be around people that are looking at us and going, wow, look at Alina. You're so... Wow. I see so much potential. You're so lichtig. You're so alive. You're shining. I see you. Right? That's what we want to be around. We want to be around people whose eyes bring us together from all of our fragmented places and see us as much greater than the sum of our parts. That's what we want to be around. We want to be around those kinds of people. Not just with their eyes, but the way that they talk to us, the way that they, they are around us, the way that they look at us, the way that they hold us, the way that they adore us. The Hanukkah is a holiday of adoration. We look at the candles and go, oh, I adore you, you're so beautiful. Because you're reminding me that I'm beautiful. You're reminding me that I can be beautiful, that, that my children are beautiful. Mitzvah's near Ishu Beso, that it's me, my beauty, it's the beauty of my, my wife, it's my family, it's my children. 
And for eight days, we're trying to practice being beautiful that way. That's why it's such a weird thing to buy presents for people on, on Hanukkah. I do it because, what well, I do it. Because it's my kids, and you know, what are you going to do? And, and, but it's a strange thing to give somebody presents on Hanukkah. Because they don't, it, it's, it's not about more. Did it come with Christmas? Is that why they have it? Probably. Mm. Which is also great. I think it's great that, you know, I'm I, just saying, it, it has something, it's something beautiful to it, in, in a sense. But there's something that is, the very essence of Hanukkah is it's kind of funny. Hanukkah combines two complete opposites, just as Shabbos does too, and that's why Hanukkah and Shabbos are so intimately connected. That's why the only reference in the entire uh, Talmud to Hanukkah appears in Masech of Shabbat. is because Hanukkah is about enoughness and sufficiency and perfection in the moment, even as it invites us to increase every day by one. It's perfection plus one equals life. That's evolution. Evolution is perfection plus one. It's like somebody asked Ken Wilber, um, do people know Ken Wilber? I'm just like saying his name. He's a philosopher. For those who understand this, you'll understand it. For those who don't, sorry. Um, um, Somebody asked Ken Wilber, you know, in Buddhism and also in, in, in every mystical tradition, there is emptiness and fullness. Emptiness is uh, formless. All reality is empty of inherent existence. Right? There isn't anything real in the world that isn't God. That's the way we theists would say. Right? Everything you're looking at is just a bunch of God moving around really fast. Yesh. And ayin. Yesh is something, ayin is nothing. In Buddhism, it's form and formless. Right? So this is form, right? But if I really saw you, I would see that you, there's nothing here but formless. And that's why in Buddhism, it, there's something called the Heart Sutra, which is the form and, form and formless are, are not two. Form is formless and formless is form. In other words, they are moving together. So somebody asked Ken Wilbur, um, if I am enlightened, am I as enlightened as the Buddha was? Or our way of saying this, if I achieve the level of Moses, am I, am I greater than Moses? So he said, in the aspect of you that is empty, you are equal to the Buddha. You can't get emptier than all phenomena. In other words, all phenomena, all the reality is empty of inherent existence, equal. Right? You, the Buddha and you are sharing that level. But on the level of form, you're more enlightened than the Buddha. Because there is more form in the world since the Buddha was born than there was when he was. So you're enlightened in the sense of form is greater than the Buddha. Which is another way of saying that God is unfolding. God's perfection is an unfolding perfection. So God plus one equals the next moment. God, and then in every moment. And the, the tension or the beautiful tension of of adding each moment to the previous moment's um, undefiled, perfect heart, you know. So the eyes, the eyes, the eyes have it, right? The eyes are what it's all about. Like when my eyes are soft and my eyes and my gaze is ungrasping, 
when I look out at the world and instead of seeing it instrumentally for what it can give me, what it can produce for me, instead of my claim on the outside world that emanates from my own emptiness and wanting to be filled by the outside world, Hanukkah says, um, don't touch, just look. Don't touch, just look. And I want to say something about this, because I just understood something. I hope you guys are as excited about it as me, because I just got it. You won't know how excited I am until I tell you. So, I said this last week, that in... In classic rabbinic thought, there's a war between the eyes and the ears, between what you see and what you hear. What's the classic example of, the, of, of, of vision gone awry? What's the classic example? In the Shema. Wait a second. That's interesting, right? In the Shema, which means the listening, there's an example of eyes that go awry. And what is that example in the Shema? Just got that yeah, it says, don't go astray after your eyes, right? Don't be taken, led astray. Do, do not prostitute after your desires and be led astray by your eyes, right? But what is that based on? Where does that come from in the, in the Bible? A little bit of a Ruvain, but, but I'm staying very carefully on the Shema because the Shema appears, that appears... Where? In the book of Numbers. There's a story in the book of Numbers. It's playing on a story in the book of Numbers. That doesn't appear in the book of Numbers. But it's playing off a story in the book of Numbers where a group of people were led astray by their eyes. Anybody know that? What story is that? The, one, the woman who turns back and burns. That's interesting too. But that's in Genesis. That's, that's, that's Lot's uh, wife. The spies. So the spies, right? The spies. Yes. The spies, the spies are looking at the land of Israel and they... This is a hearing thing. This is wake up. Exactly. It's a wake up call. The spies bring back an evil report about the land of Israel. And they tell it to the people who haven't yet seen it. And in that moment, there's both a confu- there's a there's the eyes that go wrong and the ears that go wrong. Right? They see the land and they see what's there in the present moment, but they don't see what could be. They don't see what could be. So their vision is is so focused, right? It's so focused on on what's missing instead of the possibilities that are available. And then they come back to the, to the Israelites and they give them that report and the Israelites say, oh great, sure, we'll listen to what you said. And in both of those moments there's both a pagam, there's an injury, there's a, a misuse of the eyes and a misuse of the ears, simultaneously. And then we come on Hanukkah and we do, we do this amazing thing. We take a lamp, we light the candles. And then we're told to place it at the doorpost. Some people put it in the window, but in the Gemara, they put it, it says it should be on the doorpost, on the opposite from the mezuzah. 
That's where you're supposed to traditionally place the menorah. And the reason for that is very simple, it seems to me. It's because the mezuzah is supposed to remind us of the Shema, of the listening. And it's supposed to remind us that we can be free. Just as we left Egypt and we became free, we can become free if we listen deeply. And the menorah there is also telling us the same message. One is with the eyes and one is with the ears. One is look deeply and you'll see. And the other one is listen deeply and you'll, you'll see, you'll know. So what are you going to say? Are you saying it's the same message? The same message. It's the exact same message. The message of Hanukkah is, um, is the message of seeing deeply and, and believing in what, in what could be. So this is why it's all so connected to Shabbat, because Shabbat every week is a little bit of this. The candles that we light on Friday night are, are essentially the candles of, of Hanukkah are interchangeable with the candles of Shabbat. They, they share the same meaning. And that's why we don't know about Hanukkah except from, that, uh, from the story in the, in, in the laws of Shabbat. Shabbat is also about enough and not adding. But it's also about adding. It's, like, it's not true completely that we stop everything on Shabbat. We're still living, we're still breathing. And what we're adding to the world is the holiness of Shabbat. So that's what it is to be a person, to be a human being, is to struggle between these two places between the sense that that everything is exactly as it should be and yet. And some people call that the metaphysical blues. Mm. It's like a friend of mine, I met with a friend of mine this week and she said, you know, I, I, I came into this world but I never, I, I'm, in, I'm in exile here. That's what she said to me. She said, I came to the world but you know something, I've been in exile since I, can't, since I got here. <coughs> It's amazing, huh? And maybe Hanukkah, maybe that's what Hanukkah is. It's the, it's the, the quintessential holiday that takes place in the middle of uh, the week to tell us that even in the middle of your exile you can light a candle and make a difference. Maybe. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting about Hanukkah. It's the only holiday that we have which takes place in Israel. If you think about all the holidays, think about all the holidays. Passover, where does Passover happen? In Egypt. Where does Shavuot happen? In the desert. Where does Sukkot happen? In the desert. Right? Where does Purim happen? In Shushan. In Iran. In, right. Well. So Hanukkah happens in the temple. Interesting, right? And it's, the, and it's the only holiday that we have that doesn't have any sacred literature connected to it whatsoever. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't have its own book. So the, the most secular of all of our holidays is the only one that takes place in the holiest place in our tradition. It's a little bit funky, right? There's an apocrypha book. The Macabre. I know, but it's apocrypha. Why was it apocrypha? I mean, what made them... Disallowing. I'd be curious. 
And there are a lot of good reasons why they did, but essentially it, it was the holiday of, of Hanukkah became a, it became a spiritual religious holiday as opposed to a militant holiday in the rabbis' minds. They, they sanctified and they elevated the fact that it was, I mean, they, they placed emphasis, right, on, on the fact that it was a military victory, right? But, but they didn't, but, but the holiday got spun and it literally got spun in a different direction, right? It's, uh, it, it's, it's a holiday of the heart, it's a holiday of the eyes, a holiday of religious uh, upheaval. So I think, I think that um, what's happening is that the, the entire endeavor of, of the Jewish mystical tradition is to take the holiest and bring it into the most mundane and have them wed there. Hanukkah is so holy because <clears throat> it happens in the middle of the week at the darkest time of the month it has no book, right? The things in our life that are the deepest, we have the fewest words to express. It doesn't have its own book because it's the deepest holiday. Right? Honestly, like, you're like, imagine, imagine, Shlomo said this, imagine you're about to tell, ask somebody to marry you. And you're literally about to say, will you marry me? And instead he say, listen, I have a really good idea. And you start talking. I think that we should, you know, the reason I love you is because of this and this and this and this. You start going through a whole thing. You have like you whip out uh, like a big booklet that you wrote out, you know, and it's like three hundred pages. How do I love thee? Let me count and enumerate the ways. You start going through it, and, and this is and I knew it then when this happened, and then you looked at me this way, and and by the time you're like at the hundred, hundred, she's like this. She's sleeping, right? She's half asleep. Shlomi used to say, when you love somebody. The more you love them, the more and the deeper the feelings you have for them, the less you can say about it. So you can't say anything. They say, "Why love you? Will you marry me?" It's like I don't have. I, you want me to start talking? I, I, I'll be here for three weeks. So Shlomo used to say that Hanukkah is the holiest holiday because it, it, it doesn't need its own book, because its book is every day of the week. Its book is our life. Its book is in the house. With your family, with the screaming, with the kids, and I'm just speaking about my house, with the kids screaming, and, and uh, your two-year-old wanting to hold the candle because your four-year-old is also holding a candle, and he's almost setting the house on fire, and then the, and then the doorman rings up, and you're like, Hanukkah, Hanukkah, and you're like, that's the holiest day of the year. That's the holiest day of the year. Not the one when you're in shul, and you got your babysitters, everything's all set up, and you're up there, and you're solely, and you're singing, oh, it's like, no, you're in your house. You're literally in your house. You have to be in your house. Because that's the Holy of Holies. That's the temple. That's, that's Israel. That's, that's the base of Mikdash. That's Eretz Yisrael. That's Israel. You don't have to take a flight, El Al, to go to the Holy... It's in your house, wherever you are. That's, your, that's, that's the land of Israel. That's Hanukkah. And Hanukkah happens on a Monday, and a Tuesday, and a Wednesday. Because everybody's like, oh, Shabbos. Shabbos Shmabbos. Right? Shabbos, it doesn't matter what Shabbos is like. It matters what Wednesday's like. And it matters what Thursday is like. That's that's Hanukkah, right? It's it's almost as if remember you guys when you come to shul. Sometimes I say that the the real litmus test of a shul is not what happens in shul, but when shul ends. And and the real litmus test of a shomer Shabbos Jew is not what happens during Shabbos, but when Shabbos is over, right? So, ad shetichle regel min 
that the time for lighting candles is until people leave the marketplace as if to say, this is a holiday. It smells. You guys know that... that, that you were saying that one. It smells. I remember you said why that scent was... Of all the... No, but that's another thing. I would just yeah. say that, that how the oils on, on Hanukkah smell. It's, fil- it's a filthy holiday. Like, we don't know it because we, we have like these very hygienic menorahs. We get our little box with 44 candles with all the different colors, and then we put them in, and everything, and the wax looks so beautiful, and you can make it into a little Rothko, and it's great. But no, it, it, it's, 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 it's messy. The holiday is messy. It's greasy. <clears throat> it's and it has that it has the quality of the thing that you can't get off. You know the thing about oil that they say in this farm. They say the thing about oil is that you can't get rid of oil. Like you get an oil stain, it's it's it, you're done. And once you pour oil into a vessel, you can't get it out, no matter how hard you try. It's in the walls. It's, you take a cloth, you try to get it off of the cloth, it'll stick to the cloth. There's no way. It doesn't dry up. You can only burn it off. you got to burn it off. you got to burn it off, they say. you got to burn it off. It has to be so fabrent. It has to be such a part of us, you know? That's, a, that's Hanukkah. It's like the Simpson. It's like the Rashimu and the Simpson, exactly. So, you know, I... Hanukkah. So tomorrow night, so is it the Shabbos of Hanukkah? Yeah. So the Shabbos of Hanukkah, there are some people say the Shabbos of Hanukkah, which we just had this past Shabbat, that the Shabbat that takes place in the eight days of Hanukkah is the highest of, it includes all of the Shabbatot of the entire year, and it's the holiest, uh, the holiest day of, uh, of all the Shabbat in the whole year. But everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that the eighth night of Hanukkah is the holiest night of Hanukkah, and it's uh, it's it's a really really beautiful night to pray, to dance, to think good thoughts. It's the plus one. It's the plus. It's the ultimate plus one. It it is it is the neshama of the neshama. It's the soul of the soul. It is the. It's. It's customary to have a party on, on, on and it, it, it got an, it has a special name, the eighth night of Hanukkah. It's called Zot Hanukkah or Zos Hanukkah, which means this is Hanukkah. And it, the name is given from the biblical portion that's read that morning, because throughout the eight days of Hanukkah you read a special part of, of the book of Numbers. And um, uh, it, the part that we read on the eighth, on the eighth morning is called Zot Chanukat. This is the rededication. Zot Chanukah in, in Ashkenazis. And so some people just call it Zot Chanukah. Zot Chanukah. What did they read on the Zot Chanukah? It's in, in Bamibur. It's from the Nisim. Zot Chanukah Samitveyah. This is the, this is the, this is the, so let me say a little bit about the word Zot, okay? Which is the feminine of the word Zeh, which means this. Right? Zot is Okay, ready? Yes. Okay. Hold on. So there's, there's the written Torah that we talked about last week, remember? For those who listened to last week or were here last week, we said that in, for the rabbis, Hanukkah is the quintessential holiday of the oral tradition. 
It doesn't appear anywhere. It's not mandated. Guess who decided to have Hanukkah? We did. We made our own holiday. God made... And when I say God made, everybody knows what I mean. I mean, like God made, whatever that means. Right? I mean it in the broadest sense, whatever. The, it's written in the Bible. So God, in, in our Bible, God mandates Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. God mandates Passover, Shavuot, right? And Shabbat, I cover all my bases. And the rabbis added, the first holiday that they added of their own accord, and Purim is also, Rosh Chodesh is in there, Purim is also part of the biblical canon, right? It's from the Bible, quote-unquote, from the, from the written Bible. And Hanukkah comes along, Hanukkah's like, ooh, we get, the rabbis say, we're going to make a holiday, too. We're going to make an eight-day holiday. Wow. That's a big deal. It's because when, you know, because when you love something, and you love somebody, you add to it. It's like, that's how you know when you love somebody. It's like, you want them to be more. You know that you're in a bad place when you're looking at somebody and you go, I wish they'd be less. Right? When you want them to be smaller. You know, when you think to yourself, and you know that you're not in loving, a loving heart space when you, when you feel threatened by the fact that, that they're going to be more. It's like when you love somebody, you're like, you want to add to them, right? You want to add to their life. So the rabbis say that, that the oral Torah, the Torah Shabbat Al-Peh, is... Is the, the way that the Jewish people have loved the Torah Shabbat, the written Torah. The way that we love it is that we want to add to it. We wanted to add beautiful things. We wanted to expand on it. We wanted to, we wanted to grow. We wanted. We, we were like looking at the, or the written Torah, saying, "You can be more. You can be more than what you are." Written Torah. You're five books of Moses, and you have all those holidays. But we want more. And in a sense, we birthed it. it we, we like we birthed it. It's because we wanted to add it, so we, it, it became Torah. And that's, you know, you know, my friends, I'll tell you something. The holiest moment of the Torah is when Moses breaks the tablets. It's the holiest moment in the Torah. Moses breaks the tablets. It's like one of the biggest things that he did. He didn't get punished for that. You would think, if you look at the Torah, if you look at the Torah, you would think, like Moses doesn't get into the promised land, right? And he's got a some anger management issues, and um, you think to yourself, wow, you know, let me look at Moses' career and find a, c- a couple places where he, where he deserved not to get in to the promised land. And it's so clear that the most egregious sin that he commits is that he, he breaks God's tablets. God wrote the tablets with his own finger, and Moses has a chutzpah break the tablets, but he doesn't, he's not censored for that. He doesn't, you don't see anywhere in the Torah that God gets angry. Like, you broke my tablets? It's like you couldn't have put them down and just yelled at them. <laughs> you could have taken a deep breath and count to ten, one for each commandment. It's like he breaks the tablets. What's up with that? And then he, get, he gets, he gets it's, like, it's like robbing a bank and getting pulled over for going 56 miles an hour. It's like, you know, it's like, he... He, he hits the rock instead of talking to it. Uh, okay, really, come on. That's so bad? What? It's like, I broke your tablets. You know, hello. I broke your tablets. I broke your tablets. Nothing. Nada. He doesn't get any. And then the rabbis go along and say, you know, 
Yashukach Sheshibarta. What a great thing that you broke the tablets, Moses. So, I think that essentially what Moses was essentially saying was that the way that you look at the Torah is that you think that the Torah is infinite. But it, it is only infinite if your longing is to break it. Meaning to open it, to shatter it, to see what's behind it, what's underneath it, what could be from it. It's like it's only from turning it over and, and, and loving it that you'll, that you'll be able to add to it. Otherwise, it's an idol. Otherwise, it's an idol. If it's alive, right, then it has to grow. All things that are alive grow. Things that don't grow are dead. So Moses wanted us to have a living relationship with Torah. And that's the difference between Ze and Zos, say a number of people. The word Ze means this as it is. And Zot also means this. One's masculine and one's feminine. But when, when Moses would say Zedavar, the word Zed means this is how it is as a fixed thing. This is, when it, this is it as it's being given to you. This is the raw ingredients. And Zos is what you make of it. It's like, what's greater, say the rabbis? Wheat or bread? <coughs> which, is, which is greater? Bread. Wheat or bread? Right. So bread is just one thing, but wheat has potential, right? So this is the question that, that actually was asked to, to Rabbi Akiva, and the person who asked it to him was wanting to trick him. Because if the person said, if Rabbi Akiva said wheat, then the Roman was going to say to him, well, what about the fact that you can't eat wheat? You can only eat bread. You don't make a blessing over wheat, you make a blessing over bread. And if Rabbi Kiva said bread, then the, the official was going to say, well, didn't God make the wheat and humans make the bread? So the work of God's hands is not as blessed as the work of human hands? So you know what he said? What did he say, Lena? He said that what we made of what was given to us more holy, like that we took that and we were able to create with that creative force. He said that, that's what he said. He said when you make something, when you take something that's raw and you make it into something even more accessible, richer, fuller, that's exactly what God wants, that God has actually hardwired the world for us to make use of the raw materials. And so yeah, but he said bread is greater than wheat, but only because that's what God wants. So, in a way, it's like saying that, that human beings and the work, the work that we, the perfection plus one is the oral Torah. So we took the Torah and we added, we added, and we continued to, to add. We added Shabbat and we added Hanukkah, we, I mean, various parts of Shabbat and Hanukkah. All of the richness of Jewish tradition today is the bread that begins with the roots, which is, which is the, the wheat.
And it's also true that our lives are the same thing. Our lives are the exact same thing. Our lives are perfection plus one. Our lives are the oral Torah that we write on the DNA of the written Torah, literally, that we are given. We are given genetics. We are given the predetermined. We're given our parents. We're given our stories, our history. And then we add to it. We embellish it. We change it. We move with it. Because we're all Balei Tshuva. We're all those who are returning over, you know, and turning it back and back again and changing it and moving with it. Maybe that's why the holiday takes place in our family because there's no greater written Torah than our families that we're born into. Maybe that's why Hanukkah is the only holiday which says it has to happen in your home because there's no greater written Torah that needs to be amended and added to and perfected and blessed and reworked than the Torah that we receive as children and that we walk into the world with. And maybe that's why it is customary to place it at the doorpost because that's exactly the place, that is the testing ground of our, of our own oral Torah abilities. Our interpretive capacity is tested at that liminal space between the outside world and the inside place. Like how do we function as intermediaries, as bridges between the world that we are given and the world that we create? And that has everything to do with the eyes that we, are, that we have. Like the eyes that, that are cleansed come into the world and then can see newness and possibilities where eyes that already have a pre-programmed agenda that is projected into the world of instrumentalizing and using and dividing. All that has to be cleansed so that we can be, we can be new. So we can be new in the world. That's Hanukkah. Okay. So Mikdash Melech Ir Melucha Kumi Tzi Mitocha Hafecha. The third stanza in Lacha Dodi that we were up to that I briefly touched on last week. That I'll I'm going to take the next five minutes and then we'll go. Mikdash Melech Ir Melucha, the sacred city of the king the city of sovereignty, the city of majesty. Arise and, arise and go forth from the rubble. For too long have you been sitting in the valley of, of tears, And he will, will compassionately bestow upon you compassion. The third stanza of the nine stanzas of the Lechadodi poem is imagining Shabbat as this, like Sdom, I mentioned this last week, the, the, the only other place in the Torah where some city is called a mahapecha, an upturning. Hafoch means to, uh, where it's overturned. Rubble. Is Sdom. This beautiful city that, that was confused. It also had problems with their eyes. If you look at the story, and that's why Lot, his wife, looked back and she had, it was her looking. There's a lot of vision problems in the story of Sdom. Like when they saw a stranger, they didn't see someone who deserved to be treated with respect and dignity, but someone who could be used for their own sexual satisfaction, whatever. They, they objectified people. Their eyes were all 
so ironic that in that Hanukkah falls out with Black Monday, Black Friday, and, and Cyber Monday, right? Anyway, I can see that half of you are falling asleep, so I'm just gonna fit. I'm just gonna finish like uh, just one more line, okay? Because maybe you need to sleep. It's a good, it's a good thing to go and sleep. Um, no, I, listen. My, one of my teachers used to say all the time. If you fall asleep in this class, it means that it, it's good. You need it to sleep, it's good. So I'm just, I should end early so you guys can go home and go to sleep. Um, the, um, so, Sodom had tremendous potential. And Jerusalem had tremendous potential. And Jerusalem is in space, which Shabbat is in time. And so, fall in Jerusalem is the weekdays. And the, and the redeemed Jerusalem is Shabbat. Right? So fall in Jerusalem is the weekdays. The weekdays are those days that are not Shabbat. The weekdays where Shabbat is forgotten. The weekdays are the days when we live in, in fragmentation. The weekdays are the days of more, 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 running, running, running. Chach, tach, chach, chach. The weekdays are forgetfulness to some degree, often, of that inner place. Right? And Hanukkah is trying to remind us that's why it happens the weekdays. But we forget. And so the, the poem says, Mikdash Melech Ir Menucha you, sovereign, queen, royal, majestic one, city that had potential, city of the kingship, city that represented in the physical space what perfection in time is, a city of sanctity, a city of holiness, a city of unity, of, of completion. You are like Sodom. You are overturned. You have forgotten who you really are. You're confused. You think you're one thing when you're really something else. Arise from, in other words, help me to feel two o'clock on Thursday that, that, that I'm more than just this cog in this machine. And I'm more than that. There's meaning to my life. Like, Jerusalem, we build yourself means that I can feel you. You know, I can feel the sacred quality of the city, the city of wholeness. Rav Lach Shevet You've been crying for too long. It's a messianic urge from that we sing on Friday night that the city should stop crying. But it's not just that. It's Rav Lach means like there's a certain quality of, of frustration like huh? Enough already. Enough already. <laughs> exactly. Enough already. Gehendik. Right? Enough already. In other words, you can do it yourself. Stop waiting. And if you stop waiting, that you will then be bestowed upon with compassion. So, um, I'll bless all of you. First of all, with a good shluff tonight. 100% Everybody sleep well tonight. I hope you sleep well. And I want to bless you that tomorrow night, which is Zos Hanukkah, tomorrow night, which is the beginning of the eighth night of Hanukkah, Zot Hanukkah, this is Hanukkah. Zos, which means this, which means not just this, right? Not mm-hmm. just this. This, but not just this. Is that God should bless all of us, that the sacred, the sacred source of life should bless us and move through us in a way, and we should move through ourselves, is to, is to not give up hope on the jar of oil that is 
we are guaranteed has the high priest seal that there is uh, an undefiled an impenetrable holiness that even the ones who the ones who broke through inappropriately life circumstances that broke through inappropriately and jarred us literally, figuratively that God should help us that we should help ourselves, that we should have the strength and the courage and the faith in the storms of life to be able to believe that there's a messianic impulse, a messianic promise, a messianic guarantee that there is something in us which is absolutely, radically untouchable and pure. And from that place that we can, and from that perfect place that we can add perfect plus, perfect plus, unfolding divinity within ourselves and within the world, that we are partners in making the bread of taking the weekday wheat, the wheat day, and making Shabbat challah. And in that, in that way, like we are participating in the unfolding of God in the universe. Now that's a big deal. We are God's midwife. We help birth the divine through our diligence and our perseverance and our, um, our undying hope that this next moment will add perfection to the previous moment's completion. And that though we don't see it, especially when we don't see it, Shabbat is not far away. It's just when the eyes focus on beholding beauty and, and Hashem should bless us with Heilige Eugen. God should bless us with holy eyes. And um Amen. Pretty sure that there's nobody here that's saying the more is Kaddish, unless I'm wrong. Or there is Miguel, of course. Yes. So we rise to honor Miguel's sister. <laughs>